0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. That would be me. I'm the director of church and community engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. I also serve as director of public policy. For the South Carolina Baptist Convention. All right. We have a special guest on the program this morning. Representative John McCravey is the leader of the Family Caucus in the House of Representatives. He's from Greenwood, and uh, we had a big victory, actually, this past week as we got his bill, H3447, I believe is right, out of the subcommittee to the full Judiciary Committee. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning, Dr. Bing. So, I, I appreciate yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to say this up front. I appreciated your words last Thursday in that hearing in Columbia and your good representation of the Baptist Convention and others. So thank you for coming there.
0: Well, thank you, sir. It was, it was my pleasure. Um, let me ask you about this bill. How is it different from the original bill that came out this summer that uh, was not passed? Of course, it did pass the House but failed in the Senate. Uh, you, there are some differences in this one.
1: Well, there is. Uh, there are a lot of differences. Uh, first of all, you know, we, in, in our preamble, uh, we have a lot of, of uh, what I would say laying our case out that the legislative power of this state is, is what controls this issue, not the courts. Uh, we have, you know, we laid out in, that in our Constitution and in, this, in the U.S. Constitution, that life is protected. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, unlike uh, uh, Kamala Harris' uh, version of our of our uh, founding document. Right. So, life is important, and we we talk about this, and and we make it clear that we are protecting life. That this is not about a just a clump of cells, and we are making it clear to Justice Siew that that life uh, outweighs the right to privacy. So I think, first of all, that's that's one big difference is in our preamble. Uh, second of all, uh, this this bill, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, you know, this I don't believe in exceptions, uh, you know, except for the life of the mother. But if this bill does have the Senate exceptions that they they put on. Uh, you know, I, I have to I have to I have to recognize basically that the majority of the Senate does not agree with me about these exceptions. So I have the Senate exceptions on this bill, Senate exception for sexual assault uh, and fatal fetal anomaly. So they are included in the bill, even though I personally oppose them. I'm trying to find a way. Uh, Our caucus is trying to find a way to get this passed in the Senate. Uh, I think we could have passed it in the House, maybe this time without any exceptions. But nevertheless, the Senate uh, is the stopping point and we got to try to 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 get to where uh, we can get this passed in the Senate. You know, it failed by one vote last time, basically, and uh, you know, after many votes. Uh, but one of the problems with it was, according to the Senate, that we didn't have fatal fetal anomaly as an exception. So that is now uh, in there. We're trying to take their excuses away from them to pass uh, a, a pro life bill.
0: Now, you know, a lot of people are saying that the heartbeat bill was uh, overturned by the South Carolina Supreme Court, so it really doesn't make any sense to put a more restrictive um, abortion bill or pro-life bill in place when the Supreme Court's already said, hey, six weeks is off the table, and now we're talking about passing a bill that protects life at conception. Help our listeners understand uh, what it was about the Supreme Court's decision that makes you and others believe that, that this has a possibility of actually passing the court in its current state?
1: Well, there are two reasons for this. First of all, you need to read, and, and certainly I know you have, but your listeners would need to read all five opinions right. of the South Carolina Supreme Court that are all different. But Justice few was obviously the swing vote. And in his opinion, even though I, I disagree with his analysis, in his opinion, he said that, that basically we were weighing the right to privacy against, I guess, what he would maybe say would be the, the, a clump of sales. But but uh, he said if we had passed the Human Life Protection Act, which is what this is, if we had passed that, he would have found it to be more than likely constitutional because you're weighing the right to life against the right to privacy. So that's one even if we have the same makeup of the court, and I'm getting to the second thing now, but, but, you know, even if we had the same court, we would have a good chance of prevailing on this, not with this bill, if it was passed. Now, the second reason is, of course, that, that our, our court is undergoing some change. Right. Uh, justice will be replaced uh, probably by Justice Hill, who says that he is a strict constructionist, and we're going to hold him to that. So if that's the case, uh, they would probably uphold the heartbeat bill again. It's possible. But certainly this bill takes away the excuse of Justice and in, uh, in his, what I would call, a flawed
0: analysis. Right. So, in other words, uh, even though he voted with the majority, he stated that if the bill had actually protected life from conception, that that would in his mind mean that the right to privacy in the South Carolina constitution could not be considered greater than the right to life once you define life beginning at conception so it's possible that he would vote in favor but but like you said with the possibility of justice Gary of judge Gary Hill becoming a South, the next South Carolina uh, Supreme Court justice then if we pass this bill now it's obviously going to take time it's going to have to get through the House this this term, and the vote on the justice is going to come early next month. It's going to have to get through the House. It's going to have to get through the Senate, and then signed by the governor, and then it'll be immediately, of course. Planned Parenthood will sue, and so Justice Hill will be on the court before this would appear back into the back at the South Carolina Supreme Court. So it seems to me that this is the perfect time to pass. Um, if, you, if you really want South Carolina to be a pro-life state that supports life, beginning at conception, now's the time to get that done.
1: That's right. And the Speaker agreed with me that this needs to be a priority in our state. We've got to get a bill passed, and we've got to move it. So so we're not wasting any time. Uh, we're going to have a, the full committee is going to meet uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And we're going to pass this bill again and get it to the floor for the following week. So now, I, I'm excited about it, and uh, we're ready to go.
0: Now I want to give you a minute here before we wrap up. Um, you were pretty well attacked over the weekend uh, by uh, an opinion piece in the index that stated that you really don't care about the people of Greenwood because of the Conestee Dam um, that you're focused more on protecting life than you are the people that you represent. now that's a that's an accusation that they <laughs> present in the paper and and I, I want you to respond to that.
1: Well, this was a strange editorial I have to say it was uh, just just a week just a week earlier, they put in an article that showed that on day one, I was working on trying to get funding for the concretecree Dam. Nobody else has ever tried to do this before, except for Billy Garrett, Senator Billy Garrett, who got the first three million dollars for this, and now we're trying to shore up this dam, which is an environmental potential environmental hazard uh, in Southern Greenville County. And so I've been working on this uh, uh, incessantly since the session started, and even before the session started. Uh, so you know, certainly it's one of my it is my number one priority here in Greenwood to get that fixed because we don't want toxic sediment coming down to Greenwood Lake, Lake Greenwood. So so we need to get a, the, the, the essence of it is we need to get funding for a dam to be built behind, 10 feet behind this 128-year-old dam that's in the upstate, and we're trying to get funding for that, and I think we're going to be successful. Uh, but, but this editorial seemed to say that because I had introduced uh, this life, this bill uh, protecting life in South Carolina that somehow Conestee Dam was no longer my first priority. Well, you know, like I said in my Facebook post, we can walk and chew chewing gum at the same time. Right. You know, if if, if they want to criticize, I, I tried to call the editor. He hasn't called me back. Uh, if it was the other way around, he'd probably be printing something in the newspaper about me not calling him back. Uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, They might as well go ahead and criticize me for other things, too, because I'm going to be for this fentanyl felony bill that's coming out probably Wednesday. I'm going to be for bail reform, stopping the revolving door, for criminals getting out on bail and then committing more violent crimes. Uh, I'm going to be for education, increasing teacher pay. I'm going to fight for parental rights in our state and transparency in our schools. I'm going to fight for adoption reform. I'm going to fight to ban ESG. I'm going to fight for stifling me. So we have a lot of things and a tax credit for first responders. You know, we have a lot of things in our state that need to be done. Uh, we can't just do – I wasn't hired. I don't think that, uh, that my constituents hired me to just go down there and do one time. You know, so I've always been very active, and, and, uh, and we should be. I think a good legislator can do more than one thing at a time. So – I thought it was a bad criticism, but just the just the insinuation of that. Uh, you know that somehow, because I, I I do care about the unborn children in our state, that somehow this takes this is not a, makes other things not a priority. That's not true.
0: Well, considering the margin that you won re-election by uh, this past time, I would say that the citizens that you represent agree with you and your assessment of the job you're doing, and not the index. And so that's something that you can be confident about. Representative McCravey, thanks for giving us this time this morning. We appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you later this week.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Dr. McLean, and we, uh, we appreciate you more than you know.
0: I appreciate that. And, and look, I'm, I'm going to keep you up to date on what H-3447 is doing because, again, the atmosphere – right now the Supreme Court in South Carolina is the key. If the Supreme Court changes – if Gary Hill becomes a Supreme Court Justice, which he's the only, he's the last candidate standing from the Judiciary uh, Commission that vets the candidates and recommends them to the Senate and the House. They voted to have a joint session where the Senate and the House will come together and they will vote together on whether or not Gary Hill is going to become a Supreme Court Justice. If he does... And if he is all of the things that he says he is, um, and you know, I, I don't have any reason um, or enough reason or to question that. Um, but if if he turns out to be a construction a strict originalist constructionist on the court in the manner of of John Kittredge, Justice Kittredge, and Justice Kittredge becomes the Supreme Court Chief Justice in South Carolina, I think that passing pro-life legislation that really will protect babies in the womb in South Carolina, um, I I think right now is the time to do it because if we pass it in this session, then it's going to take a while for it to, um, for Planned Parenthood, they're going to file the lawsuit probably the day the governor signs the legislation like they did with the heartbeat bill. But this time it goes before a South Carolina Supreme Court that would be much more inclined to uphold life over any kind of right to privacy. Because I think Judge Few is correct when he says that having a right to life certainly supersedes a right to privacy, because you can't have any privacy if you don't have life. I mean, this this is not rocket science, folks. It's just simple logic. And so, hopefully, this is what's What's going to happen? But it's going to be hard to get this bill through the Senate. In the Senate, um, they've there's been a, a bill introduced over there that's a 12-week bill that would ban abortion at, after 12 weeks. Well, that's the first trimester. You know, we don't we don't need to go back to a place where we're using the Roe versus Wade trimester standard for making decisions about life. If we agree that life begins at conception, then we should protect life beginning at conception with the exceptions that we have to have in order to get the bill passed. I don't want the exceptions. I'm not excited about them, not happy about them. In fact, I think the only exception, and I've made this clear, should be the life of the mother. But that is not politically possible. Sometimes, you have to deal with what's politically possible when you live in a constitutional republic or you end up with nothing, which is what happened over this summer. So please join me in prayer about this, that, that we can get this done. All right, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about President Trump coming to South Carolina. You know, Trump's prospects for being the nominee again in 2024 I think, were seriously undermined by all of the focus that was put on um, the January 6th incident, uh, the, that the, the revolt, the, um, it's not, it wasn't an insurrection. It doesn't fit the definition of an insurrection. It was a riot at the state, at the federal capital where people went over barriers that they shouldn't have um, and took liberties that they shouldn't have taken, and a lot of those people are being punished for it. Um, a lot of people have admitted that what they, you know, they um, exercise bad judgment. Um, others are still waiting for their trial. I mean, it's, they shouldn't be because it's just it's ridiculous that this has gone on this long and people are still waiting to come to trial over what happened on January 6th. So, but, but there's no question that Trump's actions, his um, the comments that he made about the presidency on January 6th and the election that appeared to make it difficult for uh, us to keep Georgia as a red state in the Senate and keep the balance of power, at least Republicans would have had a one-seat majority in the Senate if we'd been able to win that election in Georgia um, last time. Not Well, not, the, not with Walker, but back right after um, the election in 2020 and going into 2021 when they had the runoff. Um, and then, of course, the 2022 midterms turned out to be not what they should have been for Republicans. Um, a lot of the polling data, a lot of the exit polls indicate that people were swayed, independents, and suburban women and others who Republicans need to convince to come over to the Republican side, a lot of them were swayed by the argument that President Biden and President Obama and others were out there making that Republicans were extreme. Look at their candidates. Look at their rhetoric. Remember January 6th, all these things that came out of the committee. Now, you and I know that the January 6th committee was rigged from the beginning. It was never going to show what really happened or offer any genuine solutions because you had two Republicans and both of them were anti-Trump. And so the committee, which should have been an, a, an evaluation of what really happened, plus suggestions about how to keep it from happening again, turned into how can we get President Trump? That became the focus. How can we make this about Trump and how can we make it about the extreme nature of Republicans so we can scare voters into voting, voting Democrat. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, that's just really what it was. I think that's the truth. So it, apparently it worked. Well, President Trump, then we have all the documents that are found. And a lot of the American people um, who don't follow the story very closely, but they do read the news— Find out that their President Trump took all these documents to Mar-a-Lago. They see the FBI raiding his home. Uh, they see the pictures of the documents spread out all over the floor, which the FBI actually staged. He didn't. Those documents weren't spread out over the fo- floor by the president. They were behind lock and key. But it, it it made it look like that the president was treating these documents with not much regard. Um, and, of course, the president didn't respond. He, he said he had turned over all the documents. He had not. Um, so that was a major scandal that was hurting his ability to gain traction as a candidate for president in 2024. Then things began to change. The first documents that were found in Biden's possession, and there have been five instances now where documents have been found, that president biden has from his days as vice president under president obama and some that were found while he was a senator before he became vice president which there is zero question i mean you you might could make a have a question about a vice president having classified information how did he get permission to do that he certainly couldn't declassify the information the way the president can but But Okay, maybe a vice president because of access that he has, but a senator? It's like Senator Ted Cruz said, there's no scenario in which he can imagine a senator walking out of the document vault with classified information. How did he get that stuff out of there? How did it end up at his house and his office? So anyway, all these questions get raised. Then Mike Pence has a problem with classified documents. So the question begins to be, how can all these people be guilty of hauling classified documents around? If we go look in every former president's collection, are we going to find, if we search President Bush's house, if we search President Obama's house, if we search, um, you know, Bill Clinton's house, I mean, well, we already know what we're going to find at Bill Clinton's house. We're going to find probably uh, stuff left over from Monica Lewinsky, and we're probably going to find, you know, um, a lot of things looking through his house that would would not be necessarily surprising, but disturbing. But would we find, I mean, the question is, is would we find classified documents? I mean, it's starting to look like anybody that went through Washington— I mean, it, it could be that you could drive past the White House, and if you've got your window down, they'll throw some classified documents into the back seat. I mean, I, if, if, if they're that easy to walk around with, the American people are beginning to question not so much who has them and whether they should have them, but now the question is beginning to be, why are these documents being so mismanaged? Why are there so many of them? And if it's going to end up that everybody that's been serving has got classified documents hanging around somewhere, what, what kind of a deal is this? Is this really that big of a deal? And so that's given Trump some momentum. I mean, there's no way, I don't think, that they're going to be able to charge him with a document scandal because, because of, of Biden. And now because of Pence. So Trump's beginning to pick up a little bit of, of momentum. And he comes to South Carolina. He goes to New Hampshire, has a small event, comes to South Carolina, has a small event. He goes to the state house, and he gets his leadership team introduced. Now, this is not to say he's not going to come back and do a big rally. I, I have no doubt that he's going to turn to the big rallies again because that's that was his bread and butter. But he comes this time, and he gets his leadership team. And that includes uh, Governor McMaster. It includes Lieutenant Governor Evitt. It includes uh, Congressman William Timmons. It includes Joe Wilson. It includes Lindsey Graham. It includes uh, – so you, you've got a lot of leaders already in South Carolina that have come out and said they're endorsing President Trump's run for the presidency. And that's going to give him momentum in South Carolina. Um Now, Tim Scott has asked, and and I understand, his supporters to hold off because I think he's still considering whether or not he's going to run. There's a possibility Tim Scott may run for president, and he wants the people that would be solidly behind him, obviously behind him, and want them coming out and supporting Trump because he happens to be the only candidate that's in the the mix right now. Um, You've got Nikki Haley. That's a possibility. You've got Mike Pompeo. You've got Tom Cotton. You've got, uh, I think Cotton may may have announced that he's not going to be a candidate. But you've got Pompeo. You've got um, South Dakota Governor Noem, there There's just all kinds of possibilities. And, of course, Mike Pence. Now, that finding documents, classified documents, we don't know what that's going to do until all of this shakes down completely with his presidential candidacy. But he really... To be honest, and he's a great guy. I like Mike Pence. I've met him several occasions. I have, I've had some conversations with him, and I'm impressed by him. But he's not going to be the president. He is not going to get the nomination. There's just too many things dragging or pulling him back and too many headwinds against him. But you, this you can count on. If Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, gets in this race, And it's a straight-up race between DeSantis and Trump. It's not going to be a slam dunk either way. It's going to be a real battle of the titans. Uh, DeSantis is going to have a whole lot of support, and so is Trump. And it could come down. It could be one of those things that comes down to the convention. But if you get Tim Scott and, and nothing against any of these people, but I'm just saying, if the field for the Republican nomination gets up to five, six, seven, or more, then the same thing, I, I don't see how we avoid the same thing happening in 20 for 2024 that happened for 2018. Trump simply runs up the middle with his solid base of 30% support. And the other support gets divided between some good, legitimate candidates. DeSantis will probably have the lion's share. And then everybody else will fall down the line somewhere under him. Just like before, it was pretty much Ted Cruz. Although there were a lot of candidates that looked like they were going to come to the front for a few minutes. And if you remember in the the run-up to 2018 for Republicans. I mean, you had people that would rise and fall and rise and fall. But when it came right down to it, you had Ted Cruz, who took second place behind Trump in most of the primaries, and then you had everybody else down the line. And that's what I think happens again, except this time it'll be DeSantis, and then you'll have everybody else, and you'll have Trump over here with his 30 31%, and he wins the nomination that way. So don't count him people that count him out are not thinking this all the way through because it there's an environment been created now that could demonst- could could make a path for Trump to get the nomination again, and there's a couple of polls out that say he's leading president biden now i don't I, I don't know that that's a great accomplishment i mean i don't I don't see how anybody could not be leading President Biden right now because of all the issues that he's dealing with, his own document issue, plus plenty of others. All right, Ronna McDaniel is going to serve a fourth term as chairman or chairperson, I guess I should say, of the Republican National Committee. Uh, it was a contentious reelection, but McDaniel won pretty handily. She got 111 votes. Uh, her main uh, opposition, National RNC's California National Committee woman, Harmet Dillon, got 51 votes. And Pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, got four votes. So um, it's going to be Rona Dan- McDaniel. Now, I know a lot of people are upset about this. Uh, they don't like Rona McDaniel. They think, you know, we've gone through three election cycles now where Republicans have not done well. Um, the midterms in 2020 were bad for Republicans. We obviously lost the White House um, in, well, that was 2020. The midterms in 2018 were bad for Republicans. We lost the White House in 2020. And, of course, the midterms did not go well, as well as they should have in the environment that we're in, in 2022. So there's three cycles. And people were saying, look, Ronald McDaniel is responsible for the National Republican Party. And the National Republican Party is struggling. We need somebody else at the top. In fact, Ron DeSantis, without endorsing uh, Harmont Dillon, came out and said it would be a good idea to have fresh leadership. So that's about as close to an endorsement as you're going to get if you're running against Rona McDaniel. But she won big time. So her fundraising uh, for the RNC has been solid. Um, And she has been out working for the candidates. I mean, it's not like she's sitting around twiddling her thumbs. And there are a lot of circumstances that are outside of her control that have led to some of these defeats that Republicans have suffered in the last three elections. But at the same time, it's unusual to have the person at the top retain their job when there's problems down the line. But that's the way it's going to be. Rona McDaniel is going to be the one. Now, there's, they're saying that there's going to be a lot of revolt on the state level by Republicans. And I know we're coming up on redistricting here in South Carolina. And there's going to be some major challenges to the, um, the state GOP, the current structure, by those who want to change the current structure. They want to get the leadership out that's in leadership position now, including Drew McKissick. And replace the leadership with somebody else who um, would be, in their view, more conservative. So that's going to be played out in these um, as we get to redistricting. I'm not redistricting, but reorganization. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Reorganization. It's it's when Republicans get together to elect precinct chairmen, precinct committeemen men uh, in each county, county by county, and that's going to take place in March. And then we're going to go. To the state convention. And people who get elected, committeemen, then request to be a delegate to the state convention. If you get to be a delegate to the state convention, then you get to uh, vote for the state party chairman. And that's how things roll in South Carolina Republican politics. Now, Drew McKissick is now the RNC party co-chair. That's his title. And he won that title by Uh, Hoopfer, he beat, uh, let's see, this guy's from Indiana. He's the Indiana Republican Party chairman, Kyle Hoopfer, and Drew McKissick got 90 votes. Hoopfer got 76, but that was in the third round. In the first round, Hoopfer received 52 votes, and there was a third candidate, Mike Waitley of North Carolina. He withdrew his name after the second round, and a lot of those votes went to McKissick because... Uh, you know, obviously proximity. You had people in North Carolina that were voting for well, Waitley decided okay, or representing North Carolina. A lot of those people said, "Oh, we're going to come over to Drew McKissick." Enough that he won the co-chair position. So now, does that mean Drew McKissick's done as RNC chairman in South Carolina? No, he's still going to be the he can still be the chairman in South Carolina and be the national co-chair but it's significant that his uh, notoriety as a leader in the Republican Party is definitely rising for him to be able to secure this position. Now, hopefully we're going to be able to talk to him tomorrow. We, he didn't call in last Tuesday, but it was because he was already in California. They were getting ready for all this to happen, and uh, there was just that's completely understandable. And I'm hopeful we'll be able to talk to him tomorrow um, as we think about you know, what is the future for him and what does this mean for South Carolina that he's going to be the national co-chair? Does it mean anything? And what about uh, reorganization and, and, and what about the Freedom Caucus uh, that's going on in Columbia that still many members of the Freedom Caucus are not willing to sign the pledge that the Republican majority in the House— Want them to sign in order for them to be part of the caucus. We we've got I think 20 Republicans now. Some of them are, and, and to be fair, some of the ones who are in the Freedom Caucus are actually going to the caucus meetings. So it's it's not that the uh, you know that the main the Republican majority is saying you can't come into the caucus meetings. Evidently, uh, these these few members have decided that they're willing to go along with whatever they need to to be part of the caucus because that's where decisions are getting made. There's a lot of pressure on the Freedom Caucus because of that, because behind closed doors, which is the way this works uh, with as far as with Republicans, they decide their positions and then they come out and they present a united front. And that's part of the problem. Members of the Freedom Caucus don't want to present the united front necessarily they want to be free to vote their conscience to represent their constituents and if they choose to oppose a particular republican in a primary because they think they're not conservative enough they want to have the right to do that um i i don't see i honestly i i don't see how those republicans who want a pledge to be signed can win this uh that is not in keeping with you know, who Republicans are. I mean, we just, you know, yeah, we we want closed primaries. We want Republicans making decisions about Republican candidates, but we don't want part of the Republican Party in the House kicked out of the meetings because they won't agree to certain standards that everybody else wants them to agree to, particularly when we're talking about public information that could be disseminated without anybody's permission. I mean, this whole thing needs to be resolved. Um, I think Representative Adam Morgan is doing his best to try to get the two sides together to work it out. Adam Morgan was on with Glenn Beck last week talking about this because it's become a national issue with here in South Carolina, we've got a divided Republican Party when we really need to be united going forward. That's what I want. I just want this to get worked out. Now, I don't want I don't necessarily want the Freedom Caucus to just blindly sign some kind of pledge. Um, I think they have the right to raise those questions. But as, as the questions get raised, it's important that both sides negotiate in good faith and that neither side moves the goalpost of what it means to come to an agreement in the middle of the process. You can't ever get a resolution that way. Okay, I want to wrap up the show today by talking a little bit about Ilhan Omar who is the representative from Minnesota that is clearly by her own words an anti-Semite and a bigot toward Jews. I mean, I, I and even the people that are defending her, like Representative Nancy Mace from right here in South Carolina, admits that she's a socialist, an anti-Semite, and a bigot. Now, Nancy Mace claims, Representative Mace says, that she's acting on First Amendment grounds, that she's saying that even though Ilhan Omar may be guilty of all of that, that it shouldn't be a situation where she gets removed from committees because of her attitudes or what she said. That if just because you disagree with somebody, it doesn't mean that they should serve on a particular committee. Well, I respectfully disagree with that, because of the committee that Ilhan Omar serves on. If you, if the, if they wanna, if Kevin McCarthy, if Speaker McCarthy wants to put her on a different committee, then okay, um, m- maybe there's a, a House committee that would make sense for her. But knowing the bigoted things she said, knowing the socialist things that she said she does not need to serve on the house foreign affairs committee how can you be involved in foreign affairs of the united states government if you have prejudice against one of our key allies in the middle east that just doesn't make any sense now maybe she could serve on one of these investigative subcommittees or she could serve you know somewhere else i mean i i It it, it doesn't make sense, although she's a Democrat, but they are putting some Democrats on these committees. But it doesn't make sense for her to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. They deal with our relationship with other countries, including our allies. And it's clear that Ilhan Omar has lined herself up against, as I said before, our biggest ally in the Middle East and the only democratic form of government that we find there. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Nancy Mace made these these comments. She said, we don't have to agree with everything that members say. I think we have to be care- very careful about what we are as a constitutional republic. I'm not a fan of Ilhan Omar. She's an anti-Semite. She's a bigot. She's a racist. She's a socialist, Mace continued. But that doesn't mean that we cancel people in this country. Republicans don't stand for cancel culture. And that's essentially what this is. No, respectfully, Representative Mace, it's not canceling her. It's finding a more appropriate place for her to serve in the United States Congress, because you can't be a bigot, a racist, and all of those things, particularly an anti-Semite, and serve on a committee like the Foreign Relations Committee. Is that the way? That the way we want the United States to appear to our allies and even to our enemies? Now, you know, it looks like I mean, Swalwell is is going to be. Removed. I mean, I I don't think there's any question. Schiff and Swalwell are off intelligence because of the things. I mean, Schiff has spent years lying. Uh, I mean, just it's been proven that he's lied about Russia collusion and President Trump. He became the face on MSNBC of MS yeah MSNBC and on CNN of things that were said about president trump the most bizarre theories about russian collusion with president trump were supported by schiff and they've been proven to be false so he doesn't belong on the intelligence committee and as far as swalwell i mean he slept with a chinese spy and he'll go out with a straight face and say look i did i didn't Uh, you know, compromise any national security. Having an intimate relationship with somebody whose job it is to gather secrets, to undermine the government of the United States, and you're a United States congressman, that by definition makes you suspect. We don't know, and nor can we ever know, unless something comes up to document it, what Swalwell said to the Chinese spy in intimate moments. But the fact that there were intimate moments that we can talk about means that he's got no business being on the Intelligence Committee, where people are I mean, people on the Intelligence Committee know secrets. They know things about the United States government, about our military, about our foreign affairs, about all of these things that we don't need someone having an affair who knows about our foreign affairs with a person who's on the other side of the list of people who are our allies. this China's not an ally. They want to destroy the United States. We need to be clear. They, they want to be the world's lone superpower, and they're working hard to get there. You can't have somebody who is an intimate relationship with a person whose job it is is to find out those things that undermine the United States and serve on that committee. Now, nobody's kicking Swalwell out of Congress. I actually think he should be kicked out of Congress for that. I I, I don't have a minute's problem with him being removed. I, I I mean, to me, that's this is getting close to treasonous. I, yeah, we don't know what he said, but we don't know he didn't say anything. So I don't have a problem with that. I, I and I don't have a problem with Adam Schiff because of his willingness to support false narratives to advance. The, the progressive agenda, without any concern for the truth. I think that's a very important thing. Now, it, you know, it, it. and I would say that about anybody who makes those kind of comments. But Ilhan Omar, um, I, I, right now there are three Republicans. There's a Republican from Indiana. Um, you've got another Republican, of course. You've got, um, as we just said, Nancy Mace. But there's also another, trying to get their name, I think it's Representative Buck, Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado, is also saying that they won't vote to remove Ilhan Omar. So, I mean, you know, McCarthy can't afford a lot of defections here. All of the Democrats are going to vote to keep her on the committee because she's a Democrat. And quite frankly... They're going to play the political card and be more concerned about that than what makes common sense about who serves on these committees. And unfortunately, that would probably be true for Republicans. I mean, right now you've got Santos serving in the United States Congress who lied his way through an election. He probably doesn't need to be there, but he's a Republican. So even though some Republicans have come out and condemned him, a lot of Republicans are reluctant to do so. That shouldn't be the case. We should be telling the truth about everybody, particularly if they've been given the responsibility to represent people in the United States Congress and represent our country by the committees that they serve on. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I hope you enjoyed the program. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Hope you'll join us.